0: Last week we started a new series, and I want to give an illustration to start this morning that I hope will be a little bit helpful for you to understand the purpose of us doing this series. So let me say it this way. Let's say that I have a goal, and my goal is to get from Springfield to Chicago. So That's my goal. You might even call that a mission. It's a very clear mission, right? You, you agree? My mission is to get from Springfield to Chicago. The question then becomes, though, how will I fulfill the mission? to get from Springfield to Chicago. How will I actually get there? The answer to that is not as clear. You might be sitting in your chair thinking, well, yeah, it is. You just hop on 55, you head north. Well, wait a minute. Not so fast. What if I told you I wanted to ride my bike to Chicago? What if I told you I wanted to walk to Chicago? What if I told you I wanted to fly to Chicago? I couldn't just get on 55 north, could I? Now, here's another question. Which one of those ways of me fulfilling my mission of getting to Chicago is the right way? The answer to that is it depends on what I value. I may value speed. I may value being environmentally sound. So I'm going to walk or I'm going to ride my bike. I may value cost. It all comes down to what I value. So now let's bring that back to us and why we're doing this series called Family Values. I'll start by asking you this question. What is the mission of the church? What is the purpose of the church? With a capital C, the purpose for all churches is one and the same. It comes down essentially to Jesus' great commission, the last words he gave us as his disciples, to go and make disciples. That is the mission of the church. Now, individual churches might word that a little bit differently, but essentially when you boil it all down, the mission that God has given us for the church is to make disciples. The way we have worded that here at Cherry Hills, you can see demonstrated up on these banners that we've hung here Uh, for several years now. Can we just remind ourselves of how we specifically see God asking us to pursue this mission? We believe God is calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity beginning with ourselves. Now here's the key. By becoming and making disciples, you gotta have that part in any church's mission. By becoming and making disciples, how are we gonna do that? By becoming and making disciples who, read the other banner with me out loud, would you? Who love the Lord Love one another and serve the world. That is our mission. Just like my mission was to get from Springfield to Chicago. Now the fun question becomes, how am I going to fulfill this mission? How are we, as a church family, going to fulfill the mission that God has given us? As Jeff said last week as he started this series, the answer to that is going to vary according to each individual church body. Each church family. And there's nothing wrong with that. It simply comes down to what we value, right? It comes down to what we value. And in this series we started called Family Values, we're looking at the nine values that we sense God has given us of how he wants us as a church family to fulfill the mission that he's given us, the purpose we have, how we're going to get there. So I like to think of it this way. The mission is the purpose of our church. The values are what drive us. And if you're following on your notes All this is to say the purpose of this series is by naming our values, we can live them more intentionally. We can live them more intentionally. I will just put it this way. If you are a part of this church family, we hope you have the sense that we are a family. We want to make sure, though, that you're on board with what we believe God has called us as a family How God has called us as a family to pursue this mission. So this morning we're going to look at the second of these values. Last week, if you missed it, Pastor Jeff talked about the first value, which is we value the Bible. And uh, today we're going to have the chance to look at the second one. In fact, turn your notes over on the back and let's read value number two. This is something our church family values. It's how we're living out the mission God has given us. Let's read it out loud. It says, we value living as God's stewards. Keep reading. Because everything we have belongs to the Lord, we seek to generously give him our whole lives and manage well the money, possessions, time, bodies, jobs, and relationships he's entrusted to us. Now, if you've been a part of Cherry Hills for any length of a time, you know by now this is definitely one of our values. It's something we speak often on as a church family. Even two years ago, we did a whole series, an eight-week series called Whole, where we were... Seeking to understand this amazing idea that God asks us for our whole lives, not just a part of our lives. So often I just want to give God a slice of my life, you know, the religious slice. But then I get the rest of it for myself. But a biblical understanding is God actually wants our whole lives and I want to give him my whole lives. And the word behind that is this word stewardship. It's this word stewardship. And so this morning, I have the privilege of speaking on stewardship once again. And I'm glad I do because I don't know about you. I could use a reminder about this pretty much every day. I need to be reminded I am living as God's steward. So let's look at a familiar passage to many of you, but one that couldn't be any more clear about this whole value of stewardship. Matthew chapter 25 starting in verse 14 is what we're going to look at. It's the parable of the stewards as some have called it here. Matthew, if you brought your Bible and you're still getting used to where things are found is about three quarters of the way back there. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you get to Mark, you've gone just a little bit too far. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every week, but we would love for you to be a first hander in God's word. So we've provided some Bibles in the seat rack in front of you and you can find Matthew chapter 25 starting on page 694. If you do use message notes, here's what you need to know going into this message. If you're on your notes there, stewardship, which is just a shortened way of saving, living as God's stewards, is a new mindset that leads to action. I believe it requires a new mindset for us. And it's going to lead to action once we have that mindset. So that's where we're headed this morning. Before we open up uh, the word of God here, though, let's, let's pray together. That is one of our values as well, by the way. Lord, we don't pray now just so that you will sprinkle holy dust on what we're doing here. We pray because fundamentally we know that this is your word. And only you can make it come alive in our hearts. So we pause and we recognize the greatness of who you are. We think of last week and this value of the Bible. What a gift we've been given. Help us now as we open it to hear from you, to know what you would have us be and what you would have us do for your glory. Amen. Well, first, let's talk about the mindset that's necessary to being a steward To do that, you better define the word steward. It's not a word we use a whole lot anymore in our common language, is it? I think about like a ship. There's a steward on a ship or something. But quite simply, if you're following on your notes there, a steward is someone who looks after another person's property. That's it. Don't make it any more complicated than it is. A steward is someone who looks after another person's property. And we've all had experiences with this. I was just thinking, uh, not too long ago, one of our cars broke down, and so we were down to one car, and one of our friends let us borrow one of their cars. Did the car belong to me? Did I own that car? No, I was borrowing it, and this person expected, this friend expected, that I would return his property to him in pretty good condition. I mean, actually, kind of the exact same condition as when I received it, right? I was expected to be a good steward of what he had let me borrow. This concept then of stewardship, understand, is fundamental to understanding the Christian life. It is fundamental to understanding your life if you are a Christian. A Christian says, everything I have, not just my car, everything I have is on loan to me from the Lord. He owns it all. It's his property. This includes, as we read on the back of your notes, there are things like our bodies, our money, our time, our jobs, our families. Obviously, there are many more, but the Bible is clear about this. If you're falling on your notes, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, if you have made Jesus Christ not just Savior, but Lord of your life as Christians, everything we have and are belongs to the Lord. We are God's stewards. I think we just sang a song about that. You're my everything. This idea shows up immediately in the text for us this morning. In fact, read verse 14 out loud. Uh, Just to set a quick context here, Jesus is speaking in parables here. He's telling stories to to give an example. And he's talking about what the kingdom of God is like. This is the kingdom of God. And so he starts this parable by saying, let's read it. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Pretty important to understand right away. I think you can get this. Who does the money belong to in this parable? The master or the servants? Try again. <laughs> this is actually a pretty easy question. I'm going to get to some harder ones, right? Who does the money belong to, the master or the servant? Thank you. The master is the owner. The servant is the steward. And friends, we will never get the stewardship thing right until we first settle this issue in our minds. I believe this requires a major change in mindset for many of us because we have been born in a country where we are fed that we are self-made. What's ours is ours. Our goal in life is to live, quote, the American dream, right? To have the the perfect house, the cars we always wanted, the two and a half kids, I mean, the whole shebang, right? Right? That's what we've been fed to pursue. Our goal is the American dream, and we are inundated every single day with this myth of more. The more I get, the happier I'll be. The more I get, if I have that product, if I have that thing, if I have that, happier, happier, happier. God says it couldn't be any less true for those who are in the kingdom of God. You you might be a part of the kingdom of the United States, but if you're a part of the kingdom of God, disciples of Jesus know everything I have belongs to him. Everything I am belongs completely to him, and he expects me to live my life as if that were true. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. He has entrusted us, with some pretty amazing things. And it's required that we prove ourselves faithful and we'll never get the stewardship thing right unless we first settle this issue in our hearts, this ownership thing. This is why I said it requires a new mindset. Here's the new mindset if you're following there. Ownership is a myth. Stewardship is the reality. For disciples of Jesus, your very life belongs to him. Your life is not even yours to live. Now, I don't know about you, but I have struggled with this at times uh, in my life. It's hard for me to have this mindset all the time, right? That ownership is the myth and stewardship is the reality. In fact, it reminds me, I haven't used the Lord of the Rings illustration for a while, so I think I'm due, right? It reminds me of Lord of the Rings, which is just so full of some wonderful wisdom. But it's, uh, there, there's this kingdom called Gondor. And in Gondor, they're waiting for the return of the king, which is actually the third book of the Lord of the Rings series called The Return of the King. And until the king comes in Gondor, there have been a a generation of stewards that have sat in the place of the king. But they are reminded every day during their work that they're not the king. And the way they're reminded of this is when they walk into their palace, there's this giant throne that sits there. And it's supposed to be left empty. Next to the throne, however, is a small, plain chair. And guess who gets to sit there? The steward. And in the story of the Lord of the Rings, the steward during this time is named Denethor. And Denethor is, is kind of happy with the power he has as a steward. And a lot of the story of the Lord of the Rings has to do with his unwillingness when the king actually returns to give up that power. And we see that played out in the lives of his two sons. I don't want to give away the whole book because I know you guys are dying to go read it now after uh, this illustration. But the bottom line is Denethor struggled. He struggled mightily with this idea that he wasn't actually the king. And when the real king returned to claim the throne, he couldn't handle it so well. And I look at my own life and I go, I got a lot of Denethor in me. I got a lot of Denethor in me. I see that chair, the big throne. I see my plain little chair and go, well, I'd like to sit in there. I'd like to sit in that chair a little bit. I'd like to see what it's like to be the owner, to live my life the way I want to live it. And yet the mindset required for the believer is, it's not mine. None of what I have, none of who I am belongs to me. The parable continues in verse 15. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So he's going on a journey, and he gives each servant, each of these three servants, an amount of money. Now, a little background here. There were no big corporations like we have them today where all the money exists. Wealth in this day was basically existing in just a few households, and according to this parable, this is one of those households. And we won't really fully appreciate this parable unless we understand that Jesus is talking about staggering sums of money here. In this parable, when I read the Bible, when I, when I think about some of the currency things, I, don't always, I can't always compute what it means for us today, right? I mean, it talks about denarii and other, other units of money I'm not familiar with. So let me give you a, a little bit of a help here. The units of money that Jesus is talking about here, one of them would be worth 20 years' worth of wages. 20 years' worth of wages. So for the guy who's given five bags of gold, as our translation says, he's been given 100 years' worth of wages, This was a staggering act of generosity. No one would expect this to happen. And if I'm one of the servants and something like this happened to me, this is key to understanding the parable, because I think so many of us have misread it at this point. We would have seen this as a life-changing opportunity. I've read this parable in the past and I think, oh, what a burden. No, they would have seen this as an incredible gift. An amazing opportunity that their master gave them because it is a statement to them of the confidence he has in them. The servants would think, my master really believes in me. He has trusted me with these staggering amounts of wealth. And it's the same for us today. I hope when you hear the word stewardship, your first reaction isn't, oh, I have to do that. It's another thing I have to do for God. Put it on the list, right? No, no. We need to come at this from a different mindset. It's a get-to. God has been incredibly generous to us as his people, and we get to be his stewards. Besides, if you're following the incredible thing, God trusts us with his resources. He believes in you. He believes in me. He is confident that whatever it is he has given to us, the life he has given us, that we will steward it well for his sake. I don't know about you, but i got to come back to this every day every day. My life does not belong to me. It is on loan to me from the Lord, from the Lord. And what a gift it is. What an entrustment he's given me. My God believes in me. Of course, I know many read verse 15 and can't help but wonder. I used to think this. Why did one of them get more than the others? That doesn't seem real fair, but the text tells us why. The master knows exactly what each of his servants can handle, and he doesn't want to burden them with something they can't handle. You know what that's called? Grace. Grace. God gives us exactly what he knows that we can handle. So I don't need to think about what he's given you. You don't need to think about what he's given your neighbor. You just need to examine your own life and ask the question, am I stewarding what God has given me? He has given me this. He's given me this life, this body, my time, my relationships, my money, my possessions, and my stewarding all the things God has given me with this mindset that it doesn't belong to me. That's why I said the second part of stewardship is once we have this right mindset, it's going to lead to action. Right? We're going to start seeing life differently and then living life differently. So look at verse 16 and some of the action that takes place here. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. I love that. He went out at once. Of course he did. This is a chance of a lifetime. He's not going to let the master change his mind like, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? I gave this guy five bags of gold. So he goes out. He knows what the purpose of the money he'd been given was for. It wasn't to stay in his hands. It wasn't to be used for himself. It was to be invested For the sake of his master, so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. No wonder these master trusted these servants so much, right? They both doubled his investment. How many of you would like that to take place, right? They must have bought in some apple stocks in the early 80s or something. I I don't know, man. Verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, we don't learn until later why the servant decided to do this. Let's just put it this way, though. This servant wanted nothing to do with the responsibility the master had given him. So he buries the money, and he moves on with his life. Can that happen today? Can we bury what God has given us? More often, what I do is I end up using it for myself. I get on the throne like Denethor, and I decide I'm the king, not the steward. But if you're falling on your notes, God expects us to invest what he has given us for his glory. If you think this is harsh, this is no different than what your expectations would be with your money or your possessions or whatever. Think about it this way. If I set aside some money right now and I wanted uh, my financial advisor to invest it into retirement funds, I would give it to them, I would entrust that money to them, and my expectation would be what? What? That they're going to invest it. They're going to do something with it. They're going to gain something from what I have given them. So imagine if I came back at the age of retirement and I said, hey, what did you do with the money I entrusted to you? And he pulls it, opens up his drawer on his desk and he pulls out the envelope of money I had given him. My response would be, what? are you kidding me? This whole time I was expecting you to invest the money that I would given you and here you're just giving me it back? You buried it in your desk. You didn't even do a thing with it. We would all have that expectation, right? In verse 19, we come to the core of the text. Let's read it out loud on our notes. It says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. That term settled accounts indicates, hey, he expected them to do something with the money he had given them. And in a very similar way, Parables are always pointing to something bigger, right? In a similar way, we know that Jesus is one day going to settle accounts with us. He is going to come again. And the Bible speaks about two judgments that we're each going to face, right? There are two judgments. The first judgment is the judgment that all mankind, all human beings are going to face, where they'll stand before God and the question God will ask them is, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? And for those who say, well, I I realized that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved by the the blood that was poured out on the cross, I needed your forgiveness, then we will face a second judgment. Do you know that believers are going to face two judgments? And I think we hear this word judgment is so harsh, but it's actually a judgment of rewards. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 5, but you know the question that Jesus is going to ask us at that judgment? What would you do with the stuff I gave you? What would you do with the life I gave you? What would you do with the gifts I gave you? What would you do with the body I gave you, with the relationships I gave you, with the time I gave you, with the money, the possessions I gave you? What did you do with them? What did you do with them? How would you answer that question today? We're going to have some time later in the service to really kind of examine this in our own lives. But for now, let's finish the text. We've talked about what our action needs to be. We need to invest what God has given us. But God also takes an action here. I talked about this throne of of judgment. Let's, Let's see a little bit more about what that might look like. Verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Now read verse 21 with a little bit of joy in your heart, would you? His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. is to invest what God has given. You know what God's action is? It's to reward us from those investments. It's my contention that this is the whole point of the parable. And if you miss this, you miss the parable. The point is not that God is some strict taskmaster up in heaven just waiting to judge us for wasting our lives. His desire, more than anything else, is for when we stand before him, When we stand before the seat of Jesus Christ, his desire greater than anything else is to look at you and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant, because he is the Lord of the reward. He is the Lord of the reward. If you're falling on your notes there, a reward awaits those who used God's resources well. Our action is to be God's steward. His action is to reward us of a life well lived. This honestly was my greatest takeaway as I looked at this passage this last couple of weeks. I've preached on this before, I've mentioned, but never before has it stood out to me so much how much joy and delight God actually receives when we steward our lives well for him. Is that the heart of God, you see? I was thinking about when our daughter Kirsten was younger. She used to love to play this game called restaurant. I'm sure many of you parents have done this. Right, where they have all their little plastic food in their little kitchen that they've set up in the toy room and they they bring they she wants to be the waitress, right? So she takes my order and then she brings this plastic food for me to quote eat and so forth, right? And so when Kirsten would bring this plastic food to me, you know what my reaction would be? It would be like, Oh, thank you so much. This is delicious. Oh, this is so great. And of course you're watching her face the whole time and it's just beaming. Like, she gets real joy from my reaction. I'm, I'm delighting in what she brought me. Now, what would you think of me if I said to her instead, hey, Kirsten, don't you know this is all mine anyway? I mean, I'm the one that makes the money here in this family. All those toys, in fact, in that toy room belong to me. So, I mean, what's the big deal? You're just giving me back what I already have. You would think I'm the worst dad ever. But I think a lot of us have that picture of God and the picture this parable wants to project is god is our father who is just can't wait to look at you as his son and daughter and say awesome well done oh that was so good thank you for doing that i take so much pride in the way you lived your life i entrusted you with that and you you lived a life worthy of the gospel of jesus christ i hope this morning that you know that God's greatest desire for you is to say, well done, well done. If you're on your notes, God experiences joy when we steward our lives. Now, of course, the question I have to ask at that point is, is it my greatest desire to hear that well done? And the answer to that, if I'm honest, is sometimes no. Sometimes my greatest desire uh, is to... Have that thing I can't afford or to hear well done from you or, you know, whatever it is else that I want to live for temporarily here on earth. Whatever it is I fill my life with. I want to hear well done from my culture instead of from the Lord. One of the things I love, though, about this parable and about these verses we just looked at here, and I I would actually encourage you to circle, if you write in your Bible here, circle the words a few things. I don't know what your other translations might say, but it says you have been faithful in a few things, right? Now that's funny. We just think about what we were talking about in the context of this this text, right? Remember what we talked about? Are we talking about just a few things here? We're talking about staggering sums of money. Staggering sums of money, and yet for God, he's saying to the servants, you ain't seen nothing yet. That ain't nothing, 100 years worth of wages. Now, I don't know what your picture of heaven is like. But if you picture all of us sitting up on clouds, strumming harps in endless monotony, I would say to you, you probably are going to live for this world. Because that sounds really boring to me. But that's not what the Bible says about heaven. The Bible says not only is heaven going to be a place of rest and relief from the burdens of this world, amen to that, huh? I'm looking forward to that. But it's also going to be a place of great learning, activity, unending joy, artistic expression, exploration, discovery, deep friendships. And yes, as we see here, even the chance to continue to serve the Lord in an even greater capacity. Like the master said to the servants, Jesus says to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet, so don't live your life for this world. Live for the world that is yet to come. And the reality is the way we use our lives here on earth is going to determine our experience of heaven. I mean, that's the sobering thing. The way we use our lives here on earth is going to determine our experience of heaven. God is watching the way we use our lives here, and he does that through this apprenticeship program we call Stewardship. Let me put it this way. You've heard the saying, Christ is preparing a place for us. If you've been to a funeral, you've probably heard that, right? It's from John 14. Christ is gone and prepared a place for us. Wonderful promise of Scripture. But I would also say this if you're following. Jesus is preparing a place for us and preparing us for that place. And our life is the preparation. The choice we have is we either invest our lives here on earth for temporary rewards or we invest them in heaven for eternal rewards. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Can we read these words out loud together? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I don't fully understand how this works, but somehow, When we steward our lives well, we can make an eternal investment in heaven. I wish the parable ended here, but sadly, not everyone will receive the kind of affirmation these two servants receive. Verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Well, here we get his reason for why he didn't do anything with his responsibility. He was afraid. But I just think, personally, that's an excuse. He knew what was expected of him, but instead of doing it, he did nothing. We are told later in the very next verse that the reason for that really is because he was lazy. He wanted nothing to do with the responsibility that his master had given him, and so he accomplished nothing. We notice that he is ultimately a self-centered person here, right? Who does he blame for the fact that he buried the treasure? This is great. It's the master's fault. It's your fault you gave me this incredibly generous gift. How dare you do that? His response reveals one thing to me. This is really important if you're on your notes. The third servant didn't really know or love his master. If that was his thought, his attitude about the master, he didn't really know him. And he didn't really love him. He wanted nothing to do with him, in fact. He wanted to live his own life. Verse 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Like At least you could have gotten like a half a percent on what I gave you. Now, this sounds kind of harsh, but it's the same, again, expectation you would have. It's the same expectation you would have. If I have a package I want to deliver to you, and I wrapped it all up and I called the UPS guy for him to come and pick it up and deliver it to you, what would you think of the UPS guy if he took that to his house, opened up the package, and used it for his own benefit? You'd think he doesn't really understand the point of being a UPS guy. The point was to get what I wanted to get to you to you. So many of us, though, are, are like that UPS guy, right? God doesn't intend what he's given us just to stay there. He intends for it to be used for his purposes, to be passed on, to put into the hands of others. This parable tells us that the people who are punished are the people who only live for themselves. They're the people who don't want anything to do with God. And they certainly don't want any responsibility in their lives. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they, what they have, will be taken from them. Is your injustice meter ringing right now? When I used to read this parable as a kid, this used to drive me nuts. Give it to the guy with the two, at least, right? Why is he giving it to the guy with ten? Well, think about it again. Bring it to your own. If a guy just doubled a hundred years worth of your wages, are you going to trust him with even more? Yeah. And so he trusts him with even more here. He, he gives him more responsibility and opportunity. It's going to be the same for us. The more we prove faithful in what God has given us, the more he will trust us, the more he will entrust us. However, if we do nothing with what we have, we'll lose whatever we had in the first place. Verse 30, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He never knew me. He never wanted to know me. He didn't love me. Throw him away. Send them away. That's the sobering part of the story. The fact that God is the Lord of the reward, that's the good news. The accountability thing, that's the sobering news. Because there's a tendency among human beings to think that somehow in the end, when I stand before the throne of God, I'll be able to finesse my way, charm my way out of it, to try to prove my way to God. Well, it wasn't as bad as you're making it. But he will simply ask me, what did you do with the life I gave you. What did you do with the life I gave you? And I won't be able to finesse my way out of that conversation, and I certainly won't be able to blame him because he has been incredibly generous to me and to you. As we close this service, uh, we had a clear sense this week that uh, we were supposed to give some space, some time. We don't have the gift of time so much in our culture anymore to stand before our master. We're going to do that one day, but we can do that every day. We can come to his throne in a posture of of prayer and a posture of humility. And so I've talked pretty generally this morning about what stewardship is. But as you've heard the saying, nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. So let's get a little bit specific here on stewardship. I'm gonna ask you two questions. You see them on your notes there, and there's some space there for you to write underneath. And I'm just gonna believe that right now, That the Holy Spirit is working and moving in this room. And the Holy Spirit is so good that he can speak to every one of us individually if we so let him do that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to give a time, as Jeff says, just across the ticker of our mind, if God is bringing something to your heart, something to your life, as I ask these questions, that you will just spend time examining them, (laughs) praying about them, okay? So the first question is simply this. What area of my life do I need to start stewarding more wisely? Maybe you've been listening to this message and you have felt, even though I'm talking generally, a specific thing come up over and over and over and over again. That is called the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've gotten sloppy in some areas of your life and you just need to spend some time at the throne of God now and let him reveal what those might be. If you were to stand before your master right now, what would he say to you about how you're spending his money? Do you have a plan in place to steward that wisely? Are you giving to him the first fruits of all you've been given? How about the possessions you have? Are you fallen hook line and sinker into the more cycle that our culture wants us to believe? Are you satisfied from that? How about your time? Where does your time go? What do you use your time for? i got to tell you, I've had to preach this three times, so it's kind of convicting. The thing that God is showing me over and over again is, this thing's pretty great, you know. But man, can I waste a lot of time on it. This is an area I I know God is asking me to, to work on. Your gifts, are you using them? Your spiritual gifts, your talents, your body. It's the time of New Year's resolutions. How's it going? Are you taking care of your body physically? How about mentally? What are you feeding your mind? Are you watching shows you know aren't encouraging your faith? How about your relationships? If you're a parent, how are you doing? Are you remembering your kids are on loan to you from the Lord? If you're married, how's your relationship with your spouse, grandkids, friends? I could go on and on. So let's just bow our heads and our hearts and allow this time the Holy Spirit to work in us. As we ask him, what area, Lord, might I need to shore up in this area of stewardship? He's revealed something and maybe you just need to sit with him more later. But the second question to ask there is, what action do I need to take? If he has revealed an area in your life, what action do I need to take to value living as God's steward? If he's pointing out money, maybe once and for all it's time you actually sit down and make a budget. time, you realize you've been wasting it on things, what's an action you can take? Your body, you need to start exercising, eating well, stop watching certain shows, reading certain books, magazines, about your relationships, what action can you take? Maybe you need to schedule a date night with your spouse. Maybe you need to be more intentional somehow with your kids individually. What about your job? Are you representing Christ in your workplace? What action? Write it down. Let him speak to you now. Father, we come to you as a church family this morning we are grateful you have poured out abundant blessings upon us more than we could possibly deserve and our desire is with this one and only life you've given us that we could stand before your throne one day and we could hear the words well done, the words you want to give us So let us live a life worthy of the calling you've given us. You have called us to be your stewards. I want to close with an illustration that John Orper gave that really spoke to me. He lives in Northern California, so maybe that's why it spoke to me, because that's where I'm from. But lots of vineyards in Northern California. And he wrote this He says, Everybody gets a vineyard. When you were born, you got a vineyard. You got your body, your mind, your will, and some relationships. You got financial resources and the chance to do some good work. You got a soul. Everybody gets a vineyard, and that vineyard is your one and only shot on this planet. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. And you don't even have to care for it on your own. God will partner with you. Nonetheless, God never forces anybody to take action and care for their vineyard. The writer of this proverb says, I was walking past a vineyard, and I thought of what might have been. He's speaking of a proverb. He sees that the vineyard could have been something, a thing of beauty. It could have been a source of pride, joy, and income to the owner. It could have been a blessing to everybody around it. But the vineyard, the writer observed, wasn't any of those things. It fell tragically short of what it might have been. The writer wonders why. Was there a catastrophe, a drought, a flood, a fire, some other disaster? No, it was sheer negligence on the part of the owner of the vineyard. He had no idea what he had. He was throwing away the opportunity of a lifetime. People have these fantasies, Art Wartburg writes. I want the perfect marriage. I want the perfect circle of friends. I want the perfect career and the perfect education. If I can't have that, then I won't do anything. The writer of Proverbs says we must start with reality. Work the land that is your land, your body, your life, your relationship, your work, because that vineyard is all you have. If it's ever going to be different, it won't be because the vineyard fairy comes and sprinkles fairy dust on it. It will be because you asked God to help you. It will be because you've asked him, what's the next step you want me to take? What's the next step God wants you to take this morning, friends? Let's go this morning and live as God's stewards. If he has laid something on your heart, don't delay. Do it do it. If you need prayer, we'll be down front. Otherwise, God bless you. We'll look forward to seeing you next week as we continue. Take care.